Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of The Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Carl Morrison, Advanced Certified Paralegal, and your host of The Paralegal Voice. We're here today reporting from NALA's 45th Annual Conference, and you're like, wait, I thought this was a virtual conference. Well, it is. It's also known as the 2020 NALA Conference at Home. Due to the pandemic and due to ensure, you know, everyone's safety and health in attending the conference, NALA's conference went virtual, which was a huge deal. And it's a first for a paralegal association. And I know we're really, really excited about the conference. And so today, my special guest is Anne Garrity Rathart, J.D., And she is presenting at the virtual conference on wrongful convictions and what's known as the Willow Project. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So thank you, Anne, so much for taking time out of your schedule to really sit down with me and and do sort of what I'm calling an epilogue to your presentation. And welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Nothing makes me happier than talking about this subject. So glad to be here. I'm a, uh, a little bit of a law nerd, and so I kind of geek out on uh, this particular subject. So I have a lot of questions for you, <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure their listeners do too. And so let's just jump off into it. Let's just get into it. And so in your presentation, you know, you talk about the fact that incarcerated women are less likely to be exonerated for wrongful convictions than men really due to a lack of DNA, among other reasons. And I really want to know, and I'm sure some of the attendees that have attended it and, and those that may be listening to the presentation, the recorded version of it, why is that? What's the cause for that? Well, I mean, the complications are many. First of all, with women, the crimes that women are accused of tend to have DNA less frequently than crimes that men are convicted or charged with. And part of that is due to the nature of the crime. So women are less likely to be charged with with rape and murder. And so there's less likely to be DNA at the scene that is will link them immediately to that particular crime. The other part about it is that women tend to be um, convicted of crimes that have to do with people they know. And so if there is any DNA, part of the problem is that, you know, if it if it's a crime scene in someone's house, that person living there as well tends to have DNA all over the place. So DNA is very infrequently a factor in women's convictions generally. And so that means that when we get to the wrongful conviction part of it, that it's much more difficult to prove someone's innocence, to exonerate them, you know, because the DNA is not in existence or hasn't been collected or won't indicate that this person is or is not the perpetrator. So that's the first problem. The other part of it is, of course, that there are some stereotypes, as we know, that still follow um, women around. And, and part of that are things like motives that are attributed characteristics to women that may or may not be the case, such as they say the the motive could be that the person's career obsessed, and so they don't want their children around if it's like a child murder, or they're revenge obsessed, or jealous, or all of these sort of sexist stereotypes that they're bad mothers, that they're they're prostitutes, those kinds of things. And so if you're in that mindset as a police officer or prosecutor, you're much more likely to to sort of have tunnel vision and focus in on someone who's close to the crime and then without any um, forensic science that can negate that 
women are more likely to be convicted of those crimes. And some of the forensic science problems are, are key to this. So we have seen that arson cases have changed a lot. The forensic science has changed on that. Shaken baby syndrome is far less conclusive than one would have believed in the past. So a lot of wrongful convictions have come about because of bad science and also because of tunnel vision connecting a death or a, a, a crime to people who are immediately in the vicinity. And that in a home situation tends to put the focus on women. There's a lot to unpack with that particular answer, and I could really like elaborate on a whole myriad of different things. So I'm going to kind of reel us back a step. And so let's first talk about, can you define what the Willow Project is for our listeners? What is that? And, and really, how long has it been in existence? Yeah, so the Willow Project is a project that myself and a couple uh, former students formed when we started to accumulate wrongful conviction cases that were involving incarcerated women. And so we have been attempting to get people out of prison who are wrongfully convicted. We have three clients and the first client we received about nine years ago and have been doing that work ever since. All of our clients have things in common with each other. All of them were teenagers when they were convicted of the crimes. All of them were in extremely abusive home situations and or in extremely violent relationships with significant others. And all of them were convicted of crimes that were actually perpetrated by people who were their captors or their abusers. And so they're, the themes that run through this, the cases are all very different from each other, but the themes that run through this have to do with violence against women and the fact that these situations are not looked at individually by the justice system. So you you and, and other peers saw a, a need for this particular project um, initiative. And how long has it been in existence? About eight or nine years in total. Um, so that was when we got, received our first client. But we decided to make it into an organization, a nonprofit, when we started accumulating additional clients. So that was when we came up with the name The Willow Project. And actually, Willow is an acronym. It stands for Women Initiate Legal Lifelines to Other Women. And the mission of The Willow Project is to offer access to the justice system for people who have been without a voice in it in the past and who have been wrongfully convicted because of the lack of a voice. Since you've started this particular project, and I guess that's the best term to call it um, project or initiative, have you seen just a, a giant outpouring that uh, of people approaching you and going, can you help me? I, I've heard about you and you just don't have enough manpower. Is that what you're seeing that's exactly it. So we are trying not to take on any more cases until we make significant progress in the cases that we have. Unfortunately, as you suggest, there is such a great need. And, and one of the most shocking things for me has been that to find three cases that we currently have where the people who are incarcerated with life sentences are factually innocent, wrongfully convicted. And at first I thought, that is really odd. How did that happen? But what I came to understand was that it's just the tip of a very large iceberg of wrongful convictions. And there has been a lot of focus through the last couple decades on wrongful convictions generally, but 
there are very, very few people who identify as women who have been exonerated, in other words, found innocent, in comparison to the very large numbers of people who identify as male who have been exonerated and found innocent. And so this has become sort of my obsession, I suppose, Mm -hmm. that I'm trying to figure out ways in which I can get representation for other people, trying not to take on additional clients. It's getting harder and harder because once you start to get into this work, people hear that you're doing it. And since people who are in prison obviously don't have access to lawyers and they also don't have the money to pay for them, if they hear about someone who's doing it for free for, you know, pro bono work, then that makes it that much you know, more important that they get a hold of someone. So a lot of of what we hear is like letters from prisons. We get phone calls from relatives um, seeking our assistance. And then, you know, we spend a lot of time just trying to find other representation in the attempt to not take on more than we can handle as, you know, they're really just three of us who who work on it on a regular basis, along with student interns from Webster University, who are, of course, awesome in every way, too. But we also don't want to get into a situation where we can't give diligent representation to the people that we have already taken on as clients. So it's 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 complicated and, and in a way, um, so discouraging. Um, I wish that, you know, we had more resources. But unfortunately, at this point, this is what we can do. And of course, with the advent of some of these, you know, docuseries, such as on Netflix, like, you know, Making a Murderer, The Staircase, things like that, where, you know, individuals, you know, whether they are truly or or not, you know, going through the same type of, of issue. And I think that's probably, you tell me, exacerbated the problem or made, brought more of the problem to light. I think you are correct. What happened first, you know, I think for those of us who are a little older, um, (laughs) we remember a time when, you know, you sort of just assumed that people who were imprisoned were guilty, right? Right. And, And that was all that there was to be said about it. And I think then with the beginning of the Innocence Project, which does DNA exonerations, people began to realize the more and more DNA exonerations there were, it started to loosen that viewpoint. People came to realize that DNA is such an exact science when done correctly, that it, you know, pretty much guaranteed that the people who had been accused and found guilty were in fact innocent. And that sort of began to open up to crack that mentality that people in prison are all guilty. Um, and so I think TV and media followed that because it's a fascinating subject, horrifying, but fascinating. You know, TV shows started to follow that same line of reasoning and then other media, you know, podcasts and so forth, because there is a recognition that there is something, you know, inherently flawed in the justice system that allows people to fall through these cracks and to end up in a place where they clearly do not deserve to be. Right. And really, how is the Willow Project, you mentioned the Innocence Project, how is the Willow Project different from that similar type of program? Yeah, the first big difference, of course, is the size of the Innocence Project as compared to our little tiny project in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, The Innocence Project having, you know, gone nationwide and even internationally to some extent. But the other thing that makes it significantly different besides size is that 
the Innocence Project has exclusively to this point, and they're beginning to change, but up to this point, they, they focused almost exclusively on DNA exonerations. You know, obviously, as I said, our, none of our cases, there was any DNA collected. In fact, the majority of cases that are out there, the estimates are that only there's only um, DNA in about 20% of all criminal cases. So if we're finding people who are wrongfully convicted and we can prove their innocence by DNA, that means that there's 80% of the, the prison population that doesn't even have DNA. We have to assume that some of them are innocent as well and probably in similar numbers to the ones that just happen to have the DNA available to be tested. So none of our clients have DNA in their cases. And so they're very different. We are very different from the Innocence Project in our approach, which it means that we have to go back and we have to interview all kinds of people. We have to go through the records in in far greater detail. We have to try to contact lawyers and judges and those kinds of things to see what happened precisely, to see where the errors occurred and to try to write them in whatever way we can. Right. Well, I'm going to cut us off at this point because we're going to take a short commercial break, but I know you and I could sit here and talk all day about this. This is, I absolutely love this subject. So we're going to take a short commercial break. So don't turn your dial. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Legal Inc. Legal Inc. is empowering paralegals to embrace their inner legal rock star by automating the everyday tasks that hold them back. Through their free dashboard solution, paralegals can quickly and easily automate services like business formations, corporate filings, registered agent services, and more. Visit LegalInc.com to create a free account and check out LegalInc.com forward slash podcast for a chance to win Legal Rockstar swag. This episode of The Paralegal Voice is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for electronic filing in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience so you can spend more time helping clients. Because they know that work sometimes happens after hours, courtfiling.net offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit courtfiling.net to receive 30 days of unlimited free electronic filings and see how you too can e-file court documents with ease. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. Like I said before a commercial break, this topic is a fascinating one, and I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be speaking with you about this truly important topic. I don't practice in the area of criminal law. I'm in-house corporate paralegal, but I'm intrigued with the overall topic of wrongful convictions and, you know, giving help to those that are wrongfully accused and sentenced. And we talked a lot about sort of the differences in the penal system between women and men. And, and you mentioned in your presentation that the rate of incarceration for women is, is really currently increasing at a rate twice that of men, which I find absolutely fascinating. And why do you think there, that cause is for that? Are, are there a number of reasons or just a couple of reasons why that is happening? I believe there are a lot of reasons, but I think Part of it is just that the studies that are out there that tend to drive the changes in policy are looking at the prison population as a whole, as opposed to specific 
groups. And so while there are far, far fewer women who are incarcerated in the United States, I mean, far fewer women, as you suggest, the population um, of women in, in state prisons has grown by 834 wow. percent in the last 40 years, whereas uh, the incarcerated male population has only grown up by 367. Now, we should be horrified at either number, right? Right. But, um, <laughs> and this is even, you know, get based on the fact that the population in general only grew by 44%. So to have the prison population grow by 367% for in the male incarcerated prisons and 834% in the women prisons is shocking in relation to the normal population growth. But I think that what is happening is people are realizing that mass incarceration is a huge problem and that it has been policy and legislatively driven. So some of the reforms that are happening right now are just going to that issue of looking at the policies and, and then in turn creating new policies that will in some way perhaps stop that or slow that growth of the population in prisons. But that since they're looking at the population as a whole and not focusing on women, which, as I say, is a, is a much smaller percentage of that population, it's almost as if the policies don't apply. So, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in women's prisons that are very different. First of all, in when they measure disciplinary actions within the prisons, women get far more disciplinary actions than do men. And why that is, I mean, we could talk about that for a really long time. Um, I believe it also has to do with stereotypes and sexist belief systems, because um, the things they're punishing are things that if perhaps someone who was not a female did them would get very little attention under the sort of uh, boys will be boys mentality, whereas the expectation for females is to behave in a very different way so the the disciplinary actions are significant in prison. What does that have to do with the prison population? It also applies in education. So, you know, juveniles who are in the school system, females are being disciplined at much higher rates. They are then entering the prison, you know, the school to prison pipeline. And then when they get to prison, those disciplinary actions in the prison prevent them from accessing probation, other kinds of diversion programs, uh, you know, that might be for, for drug rehabilitation or other things like that. So, you know, this, the criminalization of, you know, behaviors that aren't necessarily criminal in nature are problematic. The other thing is, and something that we're just really coming to grips with, I think, as a society is the amount of people, the number of people in the trafficking industry, uh, particularly right. in the sex trafficking industry. And it's very difficult, I believe, for police officers and prosecutors to draw a line between people who are also victims, but are, you know, somehow forced to be involved in the trafficking industry against their will, but then they are committing crimes, not by their own independent judgment, but still crimes. And there's, it's hard to figure out who's a victim. So such that we end up with a lot of people in prison and particularly women who are in situations of domestic violence or trafficking and appear to be committing horrific crimes, but are actually not operating of their own independent will. 
Right. And you mentioned the the school to prison pipeline. It just made me think this morning, I saw on Twitter an article by, I believe it was the ABA journal about that very topic. And I'm going to have to go back and read it because it's, it's a subject that I was like, wow, that's a, an interesting topic. And we can talk about that. I should have you on and do a separate show about <laughs> all sorts of different things. And we could really go on on a whole bunch of different topics. But I really want to talk about, from the paralegal's perspective, how can a paralegal go about in assisting and getting involved with a project such as the Willow Project? Are there opportunities for a paralegal like myself to, you know, provide pro bono services to an organization like yourself? There absolutely are. In fact, there are so many organizations that are desperate for assistance and to have someone with legal background, to have a paralegal with that knowledge base would be just an incredible gift to a lot of these organizations. So I don't think you would have trouble finding someone who would say yes and be eager to have the assistance. The, the issue, I think, is finding the organization. So at, just as I said, the Innocence Project is big and, and visible. They're always in need of people. So that would be one place to start. But there are also a lot of other clemency-based projects throughout the United States that uh, you know don't have the size and don't have the recognition. So my project is an example. I know of the Skylark Project in Iowa, the Centurion Project in uh, Massachusetts. There are a lot of really great organizations that are doing similar kinds of work and, you know, pro bono. And uh, so it, what happens is that the people who are legal professionals are just putting in whatever time they can. So they're desperate for volunteers to do any number of things uh, on site or off site research projects, going through files, all those things that uh, we know paralegals are highly trained to do. So you know, and it's not only limited to the wrongful conviction world either. Um, we just talked right. about trafficking. There's, there are all these other organizations out there that need people to go through their files and to identify discrepancies and errors and all that sorts, those sorts of things. So there are many ways in which a paralegal could become involved in pro bono work. And if anybody needs any suggestions, I'm more than happy <laughs> to direct them to a local organization wherever they are or to something that is more widely recognized, like the Innocence Project. That's fantastic. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like that. And we'll, we'll at the closing, we'll, we'll get your contact info. And uh, one last question I wanted to ask you is, how did you decide, you know, you, you mentioned the three clients that you have. How did how do you decide to take on the clients? You know, under you know what circumstances do you choose to take on additional clients? I know you mentioned that you're pretty maxed out at the moment, but at, at what point do you have to start <laughs> eliciting more help? Well, the the first case that we received came to us because a former student of mine was doing somewhat similar work in that she was representing exclusively women in prison who had been um, convicted of killing their batterers. And so when she heard about our uh, the first client we received, Angel, her situation was one of violence, but she was not being accused of killing her batterer. Instead, she was being accused of being held captive herself and being literally and figuratively along for the ride when her wow. captors uh, killed two elderly women. 
And so she was charged along with them with the mental age of 10. She um, has some severe impairments and she was unable to say what had happened to her or why she was there or the circumstances. So my former student was very concerned about her, didn't want to just let her go and ask me if I would look into the case. And so that's how we received our first case. The other ones have come to us either through letters from prison or from people calling us and begging us to take on the cases. And, uh, you know, as I say, there are many, many more out there, you know, they're just keeping up with the mail and, you know, trying to find representation for people and responding to people is a full-time job at this point. So right. we're trying not to take on any more. We would love to take on more someday if we're ever larger, we will. But at this point, we're you know, susceptible to be having our arm twisted, but trying to make sure that we do an adequate job for the people that we have. And I have to to applaud you for the work that you're doing because it's not an easy type of work and what you're doing to help those that are wrongfully convicted to me personally, that's an amazing thing. And so I thank you for the work and service that you're doing for those that are wrongfully incarcerated and need to be exonerated. Thanks for saying that. But I just want to say that the legal profession doesn't ever get the credit that it deserves. There are so many paralegals and lawyers out there every day fighting the good fight in their full-time jobs, in their pro bono work. And so well, I appreciate the thanks, but let me just spread that thanks <laughs> to all the legal professionals who who you know, are awake at night worrying the same as I am and doing amazing things, relentlessly pursuing whatever justice they can. Thank you. I mean, we work in a profession that works in the background um, pretty much, and we don't look for the limelight. So thank you. And thank you to the listeners. Um, so I appreciate that. And, and I know we could go on and on and on about this topic. Yes, and <laughs> I often and, do. <laughs> And I love it. And I could sit here and talk to you for the next <laughs> however long. But at this point, by the time you're listening to this particular episode, you probably may have already attended her and session on the Willow Project. If not, listen to it. Most definitely, you don't want to miss it. And, and if any of our listeners wanted to reach out to you, how would they go about getting a hold of you? Yeah, well, we have our website, which is Willow Project STL for St. Louis. Dot org, willowprojectstl.org. We're on Facebook at the Willow Project STL. But probably the easiest way to get a hold of us at this point is just to email me directly. So I'm at Webster University in St. Louis. So if you lose this uh, email address, you can find me on the Webster University site. But my email address is arathert at webster.edu. So that's A R A. T-H-E-R-T at webster.edu. So please reach out if you even just want to discuss it. But certainly, you know, if you want to be directed somewhere, I'll find a place for you to work. I guarantee it. And thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. And like I said, perhaps you, you and I should do a full uh, episode on one of these little distinct topics that we talked about on today. So it's an important subject and, and the more education that we can get out there, the better. So thank you, Anne, so much for being a guest on the show today. So nice to meet you, Carl. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject. So 
Fantastic. Thanks again, Ann. We're going to take a short commercial break. We'll be back right after these messages. Nella offers continuing education, professional development, and voluntary certification for all paralegals. The Certified Paralegal Credential has been awarded to more than 19,000 paralegals. The Certified Paralegal Program is also the first paralegal certification program accredited by the National Commission for Certifying Agencies. NALA works actively with all those in the legal field to promote the value of paralegals and to advance paralegal professionalism. Learn more about NALA at www.nala.org. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screen process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screen process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. Before we end today's show, we would really like to thank our sponsor, NALA. NALA is a professional association for paralegals providing continuing education, voluntary certification, and professional development programs. NALA has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since our very first show. And courtfiling.net, e-file court documents with ease in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. To learn more, visit courtfiling.net to take advantage of a free 30-day trial. And serve now, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screen process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, who embrace technology and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. And of course, finally, Legal Inc. Legal Inc. makes it easy for paralegals to digitally automate tasks like business formations, corporate filings, and registered agent services nationwide. Visit legalinc.com slash podcast today to create your free account. Everyone, today, I, I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed today's show. It's a topic that I find absolutely fascinating, and my heart pours out for those that are have been wrongfully accused and incarcerated, and this is a topic that we should all be helping provide support and, and getting out there and fighting the good fight. And so that's all the time we have today for the Paralegal Voice. If you have questions about today's show, please email them to me at devotedtolaw at gmail.com. That's D-E-V-O-T-E-D, the number two, L-A-W at gmail.com. And stay tuned for more information and upcoming podcasts for exciting paralegal trends, news, and engaging and fun interviews from leading paralegals and other leading legal professionals. Thank you for listening to The Paralegal Voice, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com and find Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. And reminding you that I'm here to enhance your passion and dedication to the paralegal profession and make your paralegal voice heard. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.